that's enough. You're cutting into my time. Here we go. I'm just kidding. It's good to see you guys. Messiah, how we doing? The, the finals are upon us, right? Pretty okay? We all, do I need to call out any professors and let them know? Take it easy. All right? We can always, you know, I can bring the hammer down if I need to. Your professors don't listen to me. I'm sorry. I'm kidding. All right, let me do this. Let me pray and let's dive into God's word. Father, we love you. We just heard about our brothers and sisters that are in need. We thank you that your word says that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you are near to the Christian spirit, and we pray that you would be. Your word also says that precious in your sight is the death of your saints. Would you make us and all our brothers and sisters around the world faithful unto death? so that we might proclaim your excellency, that no cost would be too great for the one who paid the ultimate cost for us. We don't say it lightly. We pray that you'd strengthen us, cause us to persevere, cause our brothers and sisters to persevere, make us selfless, cause us to see ourselves as part of a global movement of Christians around the world who are on mission for you and let us participate in every way that you give us opportunity. Now make us generous, Father, as we look at your word that instructs us to be generous. Make us generous. We pray it, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. If you've got your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We've got an awesome overlap here. We're going through the book of 2 Corinthians, and normally during Advent, this season in December where we churches typically take a break from whatever their regular series is and spend some time thinking about the birth of Jesus, his coming, and creating a sense of expectation around that. The good news for us is that 2 Corinthians 8, where we already are, uh, talks about that very thing. And so we're going to just stay right in our series and get to think about what we call the incarnation, that God became man. And I'll show you how we're going to do that. Let's read 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 9. Say this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And then the the climax here of the argument. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's our text for today we're going to look at. We're going to jump around in a couple different places in the, in the scriptures. But let me give a little background to you about what's going on here. You notice some references to the Macedonians. You reference this urging of Titus to complete this act of grace that he had begun. What Paul is talking about is that there had been around churches around the Mediterranean, there had been a, an offering being taken up. Paul and Titus themselves had been going around and taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem, which was experiencing intense persecution. As a result, they were in extreme poverty. And so 
Paul is going to other churches around the Mediterranean, and particularly in the Greek world, and saying to them, hey, we need to take up money to send back to Jerusalem to help our brothers and sisters. So that's, that's the context of what he's talking about when he's talking about this ministry done. And he talks about the Macedonians in their extreme poverty, they gave an overwhelming amount. In other words, he's saying the Macedonians were exceedingly generous and he's trying to use that generosity of the Macedonians to encourage the Corinthians to be as generous as they are. Now, the Corinthians are not poor. They are wealthy. Uh, they are at a center of trade. They have plenty and they're not experiencing the same type of persecution that the church in Jerusalem is. And so Paul is essentially saying to them, we want you to give to support those who have little right now. It's, it's only fair. In fact, Verses 10 and following, he kind of continues that argument, but the crux of it is in verse nine. So here's essentially, if we can boil his argument down on the generosity of believers and why they should be generous, it's this. He is saying the fact that God became a man, what we as Christians call the incarnation, right? That's, that's our church language for the idea that God has become a human being. The fact that God became a man is the key to unlocking generosity in our lives. It's what he uses to appeal to the Corinthians, and it's what he continues to use to appeal to us to be generous. Let me make a couple of caveats to that, okay? Number one, when we talk about generosity, I don't just want you to think financial generosity or monetary generosity. Of course, that's what he's talking about specifically in this context. He's wanting the, he's wanting the Corinthians to give financially to support the rest of the church globally, Jerusalem church in particular. But don't just think financial generosity. Think in terms of generosity on all levels. Because the incarnation, God becoming man, is able to unlock a type of generosity in us that we may not think of if we just think of its ability to make us generous with our money. Because it can make us generous with our time, make us generous with our praise, and make us generous in our affections. How many of you have ever felt like, I know I should feel deep an affection and love for this person, but I have great difficulty expressing it. I have great difficulty expressing to them how much affection I have for them. Well, if that kind of lack of generosity exists in your life, it's the incarnation itself. God become man, according to this, that has the ability to unlock your ability to be generous in all capacities, in all facets of life. With the things that you possess, with the money in your bank account, with your words, with your affections. That's the kind of generosity we're after. So we're not just after a financial generosity. We're after a generosity of being that exists throughout all of ourselves. We want a wholeness of generosity in our lives. You know, I, and I would say this. I don't often, I, I've yet to meet the person that says, I don't want to be generous. Right? I have met plenty of people who don't think about generosity at all or very little, and I've met people who find it very hard to be generous, but I haven't met too many people who just say, generosity, no thanks. And so even as we think about that, the reality is, while most people are interested to some level in being generous, many of us find it difficult. And so my hope is that as we look at 2 Corinthians 8 today and a couple of other texts around, that we might see some ways that God is able to make us generous. And as we always say, our beliefs affect our actions. So what we believe matters immensely. So we're gonna talk about what we believe about Jesus becoming a man and how that influences our generosity. So now, one other caveat I need to give you or one other sort of definition I need to give is this. When we talk about incarnation, Jesus becoming man, most of us in this season especially think about the birth of Jesus. We think about Luke chapter two and Jesus being born in a manger and the angels singing on high. And we think about all the aspects of the incarnation. When we hear that term, our mind usually runs to the manger, doesn't it? Yes. 
What I want to encourage you is we're using the term incarnation not just to talk about Jesus becoming man in the first few days of his life, but the fact that Jesus lived as a man his entire life. And so we're thinking about the entirety of his life, from birth to death. All of Jesus' life is a part of the incarnation, right? God become man. So all of his life is worth examining in terms of wanting to become generous. So the first question then, if we're saying that the incarnation it has the, is the key that unlocks the door to generosity, the first question we probably should ask is, well, how does it do that? How does the incarnation make us generous? If you picked up the sermon notes, you've got in there two things, okay? And it's pretty straightforward, pretty simple. The incarnation makes us generous by making us grateful, by, by making us people who express gratitude, okay? And then it also does so by filling us with faith, by filling us with faith. I don't know what I just did. Hopefully we're still, yeah, we're still good. We're still on. All right, fantastic. Look at verse nine again, okay? I just want to trace this out for you because look at what he says, chapter eight, verse nine. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Okay, so what's he talking about there? The first thing he does is he says, Corinthians, I want you to become generous. So what am I going to tell you? Jesus Christ was immensely rich and he became poor. So what's he trying to invoke in us? a sense of gratefulness, right? A sense of gratitude that Jesus would leave his position in heaven, his existence with God for all eternity, which was, which was a, an existence in which he was worshiped and held on high, in which he experienced none of the difficulties of humanity, and he became poor by taking on humanity. So that's the first thing he says. It's a backwards looking what God has done in becoming flesh. He has made himself Poor. That's meant to evoke gratitude. Now, we may stop there and think, okay, well, yeah, being grateful for the incarnation, grateful for what God has done, certainly I can see how that would make me want to be more generous. He was so exceedingly generous, therefore I want to be generous. You guys follow that, right? That's pretty straightforward logic. But I want you to know that gratitude is not enough. Gratitude is never enough. In the Old Testament, again and again, God's people are told to remember. Remember that I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Remember that I'm the God of your fathers, Isaac and Abraham and Jacob. Remember this, remember that. They're told again and again. But in the New Testament, when we trace forward, that sense of gratitude is still there. Remember what I have done for you. But he doesn't just intend us to look backwards and be grateful and then say, aha, therefore I will live out of gratitude. He says, I want you to see what the thing that has been done will do for you in the future. And that is called what? Faith. Believe. Again and again, we're told to believe. And it's that belief that transforms us. It's that belief that becomes the catalytic element in our lives that transforms us into the image of Jesus. Not just believing that he has done, but that what he has done will do something for us in the future. Which is why he says, Paul says, he became poor so that through his poverty you may become rich. He doesn't just point to what was done. He points to what was done and what it will do for us. So he points to gratitude and he points to faith. Those are the two ways that the incarnation, what it has done, what it meant to be given up by God, and what then is acquired by us because of what was given up by God, that become the thing that changes. So gratitude and faith both necessary. You guys with me? You follow me? Okay, so those are the two ways that 
that, grad, that, um, that the incarnation changes us. So we're going to ask two questions over the next couple weeks, over this week and next week. And so that's my just way of saying that you have to come back for part two next week. It's like a surefire way, right? So number one is this. This week we want to tackle the question, how did Jesus become poor by becoming a human being? In other words, when we say, when this scripture says, he who was rich became poor, well, what does that mean? In what sense does the incarnation represent poverty for Jesus? There's a couple ways we'll talk about. And then next week, we want to ask the question, that's the gratitude side. What did he give up? What should we understand about what was laid down that would make us grateful? And then next week, come back and we want to talk about what is it that we have gained through his poverty? How has his becoming poor made us rich? And we'll talk about the wealth there. Now, let me just also say, when, we, when it, the scriptures say that he became poor so that we might become rich, he's not talking about monetary wealth. He's not saying that God is guaranteeing all of us monetary wealth because Jesus gave up great treasure in heaven and then therefore now we get monetary wealth. He's talking about richness before God, eternal wealth, that which lasts beyond the grave. That's the kind of wealth he's talking about. So, Let's look, and we're gonna jump around a couple different places. So how did Jesus become poor? That's our question. I wanna give you five ways that Jesus became poor that will help us understand what was, what was given up in the incarnation, in God becoming man. In Luke chapter two, we won't necessarily read them, but in verse seven and in verse 24, there's a couple of important things that point out the first way that Jesus became poor. And the first way he became poor is he became poor in possessions, Jesus became poor in possessions. I want you to get this because in verse seven, we're told that there was no room in the inn, therefore they gave birth in a what? In a stable, in a manger, right? Jesus is born in the lowliest of circumstances. Now, if you are pregnant and you have any means by which you can purchase a room to, have, to give birth to your child, are you gonna purchase that room? It's not as if Mary and Joseph are walking around by them and go, wow, it's full, but you know what? We've got enough money. We'll sort of, we'll figure out a way, right? Money will open some doors for us. We'll just make it happen, right? If they had any ability to purchase a room, they would have had a room. And so we're told, well, he's born in the stable and he's laid in the, in the trough because there's no, other, there's no other thing for him. Now, perhaps even more interesting, in verse 24, what we find is, According to Jewish law, after a baby is born, the parents are supposed to take the baby to the temple. There's a whole ritual. Uh, and part of that ritual is that they have to offer sacrifices. Now, in Leviticus, if you uh, have a baby and bring the sacrifices, what you're supposed to bring is a lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon. Those are the two things you're supposed to bring as an offering uh, as a part of the law. It says in Leviticus, if you can't afford a lamb and a turtle dove or pigeon, then you can bring what? Two turtle doves, no lamb. And we find in verse 24 that the offering that Mary and Joseph bring is two turtle doves, which tells us that they didn't have money for a what? For a lamb. Somebody pointed out to me between services, oh, they brought a lamb. <laughs> but they didn't sacrifice them. So no lamb, right? At least not the kind we're thinking of. They bring two turtle doves, which is, which is meant to tell us that Jesus is born into immense poverty. Now, think about this. Colossians, listen to what Colossians 1.16 says. Speaking about Jesus, Paul says this. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Okay, so he, he's created all of it. And then the last phrase, and for him. In other words, what Paul is saying is, look, if you're the one who made everything, then you own everything. All of it belongs to you. 
So this is Jesus' situation. In his, prior to his becoming human, he is Lord over all things because he has created them. And they exist for him, for his pleasure, for his purposes. Everything that exists, exists because he made it and he has declared why they should exist. And nothing can question whether or not they exist for this purpose or that purpose. What I tell you is your purpose, that's your purpose. What I pleasure to use you for, that's what you are to be used for. That's the nature of Jesus' existence. And he comes into the world in immense poverty. Now, if Jesus had been born into the palace, into the throne room, into great wealth, it still would have been infinitely less wealth than he was worthy of and that he possessed prior to becoming human. Have you thought about that? If he was the richest human being in the world in his incarnation, it still would have been poverty compared to what he had before he became human. All things belong to him. And as if to say, look, I, I, need you to get, I need you to get my poverty in becoming human. I'm gonna not just be born into a palace, even though that's infinitely less than I possessed before and am worthy of. I'm gonna be born into the lowest of low circumstances. I'm gonna be born into impoverished circumstances so that you can get and understand what it means that I became poor so that you might become rich. So that's the first way. It becomes poor in possessions. The second way that Jesus becomes poor. He becomes poor in worship. Now, I don't mean that he becomes a poor worshiper, okay? He becomes poor in the worship that was to be given to him. Now, Jesus' life begins in Luke chapter 2, and the angels are singing and declaring his praise. Angels on high, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among men with whom his favor rests. And you're thinking, that's a pretty good way to come in. That's pretty good worship. Well, that's about all he gets. The heavens only open up two more times in his entire life to declare his praise at his baptism and at his transfiguration. It's the only other two places where we see the heavens part and God declare something about his son's worth and goodness. So Jesus now spends the bulk of his life in relative obscurity. He spends the bulk of his life not receiving the praises of which he is due. And he ends his life because he declares that he is equal with God and worthy of the praises of all people and declaring that makes him, according to other human beings, blasphemous. And so he is killed for the very thing that he has declared he is worthy of, to be worshiped along with God. You guys follow that? So you wanna talk about becoming impoverished in worship. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17, 5. As he's praying, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You get what he's saying there? Jesus is saying before any, anything in creation came into existence, before when there was nothing, I was being praised with you, God. I was in equal stature with you to be worshiped and praised. Now, I don't know about you, right? But when people say, I'm not sure Jesus ever claimed to be God. When Jesus says in John 17 that he received worship along with God, do you think that you or I or any other created being could stand in the presence of God and say, I deserve to be worshiped along with him? The answer should be no, right? But Jesus declares, this is who I am being worshiped in my existence prior to becoming a human being. Now, Jesus is receiving that. Now, I want you to get, just to maybe get a picture of what it would have looked like for Jesus to be worshiped, what kind of worship he would have received 
prior to becoming human. Let's go to Revelation chapter 4. Now, I know this is a vision of something to come, right? Something at the end. But this same type of worship, I think it's fair to say, would have been given to Jesus in his existence from eternity past, beginning in verse 2. I just, you have to picture this. It's meant to be a visual, okay? So see if you can capture this visual. It says, at once, this is John speaking, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And the throne and around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. Now notice he says, like a lion, because he doesn't know what this creature is. The closest thing he can declare it to, or compare it to, is a lion. It's something like a lion. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, the only one that doesn't say like, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is a scene in the throne room of God where there are creatures that we don't even begin to comprehend who have been created solely for the worship of God because he is worthy of that. And so they have surrounded him. And I don't even get how the elders, it says whenever the creatures say holy, 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 the elders fall down, but it says that they never cease saying holy, holy, holy. So the elders, I don't know when they ever get up and sit on back on their thrones. They must just be on their faces constantly Worshiping, I don't know if there's an intermission and they get back, okay, and then we're back down on our faces. It's just constant. You get the picture, right? Now, here's what you need to know. That's the kind of worship Jesus was worthy of every moment he walked this earth. Every moment, everywhere his sandals touched, there should have been people bowing down and declaring, worthy are you to receive praise and honor and glory because you have created all things and by your will they exist. Instead, we get people testing and challenging his authority, questioning his validity, ultimately putting him on a cross. Everywhere he went, he should have received praise like this. He received it in eternity past. He will receive it in eternity future. And he became poor when he became a human being because he did not receive it when he was here. Now, here's what that makes me think of. When we come to worship on Sunday morning, do we come ready? 
Do you spend your Saturday night thinking, how do I prepare myself to enter into the throne room of God with God's people and declare his praises? This one who has been impoverished in worship by becoming a human being so that he might ultimately have all worship for all eternity. Do we make him continue to be poor in our worship or do we bring our best offerings, our sacrifice of praise and declare to him, you are worthy and I have prepared myself to sing your praises because there is nothing as good as you. We need to come ready I don't get the sense that when I read that Revelation 4 vision that the creatures are saying, holy, holy, holy. You're worthy. We've been saying this for a while now. Kind of, can we move on to something else? Right? They sing the same song over and over and over and they don't grow weary or tired because they are in the presence of the one who is worthy of all praise. Friends, oh, how my heart beats for us to be a church. When we come, we come ready. And we are unafraid to give every bit of our passion and emotion and mind and will bent towards the worship of God. Anything less is impoverishing him in worship. He is worthy and he will be worshiped. Oh, don't you want to be a part of a church that when God greets you, he says, oh, you were a part of a body that gave me great praise. Look, our best is still not gonna come up to what it should be. But can we stop thinking those silly thoughts about what's somebody gonna think if I get on my knees or raise my hands or what's somebody gonna think if I just sit and fold my hands and just need to pray and talk? What's somebody gonna think if I sing at the top of my lungs and I got a terrible voice and they're sitting right in front of me? You know what they're gonna think? That's awesome. Because look, if you got a great voice, it's not a big deal if you sing loud. We know, it's pretty. <laughs> all right, good for you. If you got a terrible voice and you sing loud, it's like, all right, God is worth it. Because that's really embarrassing what's going on behind me. But it's so good. I don't care. Come ready. Come ready. Can I come ready? Just say it with me. Can you say come ready? Come ready. Please. The next way Jesus became poor. He became poor in power. Now, look, I know I say that and you're like, wait, what? Because, I mean, he raised the dead. He healed the sick. He, you know, new things that no one could know. You're like, okay, he's not, he, there doesn't seem to be any shortage of power here. But let's not forget that Jesus did not come into the world as a full-grown man. Jesus came into the world as a what? As a baby. There's nothing less powerful than a baby. I got three kids. You know the part of their infancy that creeps me out? It's the part where they can't hold up their head. That's so scary to me. Like, you know, like I just feel like they're gonna break, right? Like, the head flies. It's just weird. They have to have their head supported at all times, right? Now, think about this. The one who set the stars and planets in motion and created it all and sustains their very being just by existing entered into an existence where he couldn't hold up his own head. That's poverty of power. 
I mean, for you and I, it's like, okay, I mean, we, we grow from infancy to this grown state where we have a little more power, but we're talking about the one who flung the stars into the sky. And he said, you know what? I'm gonna take on a human form where I can't even lift my head. So Jesus experiences a poverty of power, which is meant to fill us with gratitude that one with such power would become so small, so fragile, so powerless. Number four, Jesus became poor in relationship. Jesus became poor in relationship. Here's what I mean. John 10, 30, Jesus says this. One of the reasons they put him on the cross, I and the Father are one. Again, go back to what he was saying about his, his existence for all eternity in John 17, right? I was receiving praise with God the Father because we're one. I am God, Right? And he's declaring that, I'm one with the Father. In other words, he had only ever for all of his existence known perfect unity with the Father. And then the culmination of his incarnation, the culmination of his taking on human flesh was to be hung on a cross. In Matthew 27, verse 46, he cries out on the cross and says, where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me? In other words, that's a declaration of, you have abandoned me, God, You have gone away. Now, for you and I, we are born with a fractured relationship with God. We are born separated from God because of the sins of humankind. We're born into that. So we know nothing other than a fractured relationship unless we come to Jesus and have it restored. But Jesus did that in exact reverse. He had only ever known perfect relationship with the Father. And the ultimate poverty he experienced in his humanness, in becoming a human being, was when he hung on the cross and the sins of the world and the wrath of God for those sins were poured out upon him, causing a relational separation from the Father for the first time in all of eternity for Jesus. And you want to talk about poverty. When you have known perfect union with the Father, and then had that wrenched from you. So that now for the first and only time, friends, you experience a relational fracture with the God of the universe. That is relational poverty. The fifth way Jesus became poor was by becoming poor in life. What I mean is poor unto death. And just related to what we just said, Matthew 27, verse 50, again, Jesus on the cross cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit, choosing to die, giving his life. Now, we've heard that a lot, but I want you to think about this because obviously his death was a result of his incarnation. He couldn't die if he didn't become a human being, becomes a human being, leads to his death. That's the trajectory of his life. He knows it. He aims at it and moves towards it so that God's purposes can be accomplished But listen to what John writes about Jesus, the beginning of his gospel. John chapter one, verses one through four. In the beginning was the word, he's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So not unlike what we saw in Colossians chapter one, right? He's the creator of everything. He owns it therefore, right? Same idea. Then in verse four, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What's he saying? 
what John is saying is that life is not this, this animating force that makes something be able to be called alive, right? The, the animating force that makes you live and move and have being so that we say you're not, you're organic, not inorganic, right? You actually exist. You have this thing called life in you, been breathed into you. The thing that makes something alive, that force is not just something that Jesus has like a a storeroom of and goes to every once in a while and says, I'm gonna give a little bit of this, I'm gonna give a little bit of that. He's saying that Jesus possesses it within himself. In other words, his very being is the life that imparts life to all other things. If Jesus ceased to exist, we would cease to exist. So how does the one that internally possesses this animating force called life, how does that one die? Life is innate to that one. It's not something given to him. It is something he gives to others. He possesses it and owns it and nothing exists apart from him. So how do you die if you are God that possesses life as your very own possession that is core to your being? you must take on a different form of existence and be willing to lay it down. Now you wanna talk about poverty. In his becoming human, Jesus lays down the very thing that is his to give to all other things, life. So Jesus becomes poor in life by submitting himself to death because it was the will of the Father. Now there are other ways that Jesus becomes poor, and we can touch on, we can spend more time here, but those are the five that I wanted to give you today. Now, here's my hope, okay, friends? When you begin to understand exactly what it means, that it's not just this cute little story that we kind of read at Christmas with our kids before we tear open the gifts. Yeah, Jesus, the stable, the manger. Recognize that when you read that story, this type of poverty is what you're meant to see. It's not glorious Jesus coming into humanity is Jesus laying down glory to become human so that you and I might be reconciled to God. And next week, please, friends, come back. We're gonna talk about how does his poverty make us rich so that we would be filled with faith. My hope is that you would leave this place filled with gratitude today for what was laid down for you, that the the incarnation represents immense poverty for our King Jesus.